Shalom. This is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Afinu Malchinu, our Father and our King. Lord, we praise you, we worship you, and we thank you for this day that you have set aside for us to encounter you, for us to worship in your presence, and for us to meet with you. Father, I pray that you breathe in our lives and our hearts right now, Lord, that as we open up your word, as we prepare to receive from you, that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that nothing of me will be involved in this message, that it will be your heart uh, speaking, your voice heard, and your words received. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu, in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. And everyone says, Amen. So this week we're in Parsha Vayishlach. We're looking uh, further at the life of Jacob. As we've seen up to this point, and as I've made reference to several times now, Jacob, up at least up till this point, uh, really wasn't such a great dude in general. Um, he was not strong in faith. We look at him as one of the great fathers of our faith, uh, one of these great men of faith to respect, revere, and to look up to, to see example from. But the reality is, is up to this point at least, he really hasn't been that great of an example. Uh, and so where we're at this particular Parsha this week in Genesis 32, beginning with verse 4, is we're seeing Jacob now on his return. He has left uh, uh, Haran, he has left Laban's house, and he's on his way back to, uh, to Canaan, to what is to be the promised land, and back to meet his brother Esau, uh, who he's been estranged from for 20 years now, a little over 20 years now, who last he knew and heard wanted to kill him, uh, and, and he's finally on his way back. So this is where we pick up at this week, Genesis 32, verse 4. If you have your scriptures, go ahead and open up. It says, Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau, to the land of Seir, the field of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, This is what you should say to my Lord, to Esau. This is what your servant Jacob said. I've been staying with Laban and have lingered until now. Now I have come to possess oxen and donkeys and flocks and male servants and female servants. I sent word to tell my Lord in order to find favor in your eyes. The messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We went to your brother, to Esau, and he is also coming out to meet you, and 400 men with him. So Jacob became extremely afraid and distressed. He divided the people with him and along uh, with the flocks and herds and camels into two camps. For he thought, if Esau comes to one camp and strikes it, the camp that is left will escape. Now, right out the gate, we read this, and as we were talking earlier when it was brought up during Q&A, um, we can easily, as humans, recognize at least the glimmer of logic in Jacob's fear, right? Esau, the last he knew 20 years ago, wanted to slaughter him, wanted to kill him, slice his throat, get rid of him, and take back everything that he thought Jacob took from him. Um, and so now that he's on his way back to see Esau again after 20-some-odd years, he's heading back, and he gets word from his messengers that Esau's on his way out to meet him as well, and that he's got 400 men with him. Now, Jacob's mind is, 400 men, that's an army, he's coming to slaughter me. 
Conversely, it's easy to imagine the logic in Esau's head. Last he knew 20 years ago, Jacob remembered that Esau wanted to kill him and that Esau was chasing him to kill him and that Jacob got away and found protection in Laban's house. And now Jacob's on his way back and uh, he is stronger and he's mightier. He just got word from Jacob's servants, his messengers that he sent to them, that Jacob has now grown into this monstrous wealth and house and has all of these servants and so on and so forth. And he's got many kids and and so in Esau's mind, it's easy to imagine Esau's thinking, oh dear Lord, he's coming to gain retribution. I've kept him away from our family for 20 years. He's coming to get retribution. So I think both of them were thinking, okay, they're coming to kill me. And that's just the bottom line. They're coming to slaughter me. Uh, the, the, all of a sudden, Jacob decides to go into protection mode. He splits his household, splits everything he has into two separate camps. And, uh, and Sadly, I hate to put it this way, but sadly, seeing the way he breaks them down by wives and, and children and such in, in just a few moments in the Parsha, uh, I, I imagine that in the first group that would have come across Esau first were the, the two uh, servants, maids, servant maids or maid servants, whatever they were called, and their children and some stuff with them, some servants with them. And he imagined if they got slaughtered first, you know, no harm, no foul, it's only four kids we can run out. Um, and I've got the other two with me. But uh, as we look at all of this, we see that he, he separated them out just to be on the safe side. And then it says he actually sent them across the river to wait for him on the other side while he uh, encountered the Lord for a bit, while he prayed first. And so in verse 10, we see that Jacob now has split his camp into two, and he is uh, he's going to approach the father and pray. He says, then Jacob, uh, the, the Parsha says, then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, Adonai, who, sent, who said to me, return to your land and your relatives, and I will do good with you. I am unworthy of all the proofs of mercy and of all the dependability that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed over this Jordan, and now I've become two camps. Deliver me, please, from my brother's hand, from Esau's hand, for I am afraid of him, that he'll come and strike me, the mothers with the children. You yourself said, I most certainly uh, I will most certainly do good with you and will make your seed like the sand of the sea that cannot be counted because of its abundance. All of a sudden, we recognize that in this encounter with the Lord, in this opportunity where he takes the time to, to actually sit back and pray, instead of rushing at the problem through his humanity, he sits back to look at it from the spiritual reality of what's happening, and he bows down to the Lord and he prays. And, and I think it says a lot about who Jacob is now, 20 years removed from where he was running away from Esau in the first place, because he says, I am unworthy of all the proofs of mercy and of all the dependability that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed over this Jordan, and now I've become two camps. When he left and he had the encounter with the, the dream and the vision of, uh, of the, the ladder and the angels going and coming from the ladder and seeing the Lord standing upon the ladder, the top of the ladder in heaven, uh, he has this encounter and after the, the dream, he wakes up and he goes, oh, surely the Lord was in this place and I didn't even realize it. And he begins to pray and says, okay, God, if you really care about me, if you really want to be my God, if you really want me to believe in you, to walk with you, to be fervent in faith to you, then while I'm gone, I want you to protect me and take care of me. And all these things you said you're going to do, make sure you do them. And when you bring me back to this place, to Bethel, to Bethel, then I will worship you and I will praise you, and you will be my God. And he makes it very clear that it's an if-and statement. If, God, you do what you say you're going to do, then I'll get in line. Now, what God really wants is he's going to do what he says he does no matter what. 
really doesn't matter what we do, but what he wants is that we get in line first so that when he's blessing and when he's providing and when he's protecting, it's not a waste of time. And so as Jacob has this whole encounter, he's now 20 years getting burned left and right by Laban, by his uncle and master. Now all of a sudden he's returning back and he recognizes, you know what? The Lord is in fact gracious and merciful and caring and protective. And he has in fact brought me back to this place and he has in fact taken care of me and done everything he said he was going to do in providing for me and giving me children uh, more numerous than I can imagine and, and all of these, uh, these goods and animals and so on. He says, I am unworthy of all the proofs of mercy and of all the dependability that you have shown to your servant. How many of us far too often feel that way in our lives? Lord, I am unworthy of the proof of your mercy. Not just the mercy, not just the grace, not just the protection, but Lord, I am unworthy of just the proof that you're there. But Lord, you love me anyways, and you cherish me anyways. And he goes on and says, deliver me please from my brother's hand, from Esau's hand, for I am afraid of him that he'll come and strike me, the mothers with the children. You yourself said, and he quotes back the Lord's words, I will most certainly do good with you and will make you your seed like the sand of the sea that cannot be counted because of its abundance. And it says he stayed there overnight uh, and, uh, and then starts to break his stuff down and send out these gifts to, to Esau and so on. Verse 23, then he got up that night and took his, wife, his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed over the fort of Jabok. Uh, he took them and sent them across the stream and he sent, them acro- he sent across whatever he had. Everything that he had, he said on the other side of the stream. And then he says in verse 25, so Jacob remained all by himself. Then a man wrestled with him until break of dawn. When he saw that he had not overcome him, he struck the hip socket of his hip. So he dislocated the socket of Jacob's hip and wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the dawn has broken. But he said, I won't let you go unless you bless me. Then he said to him, what is your name? Jacob, he said. Then he said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but rather Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome Then Jacob asked and said, please tell me your name. But he said, what's this? You are asking my name. Then he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face and my life has been spared. So he interacts with God. He has this this wrestling match, if you would, with uh, with what appears to be an angel. And, and it's really interesting if we go back to looking at the sages' take on some of these things. Uh, sometimes I look back at the, the sages' uh, interpretation and go, what the mess is this? Like at the beginning of the parsha, when it says he sent malachim, as the Hebrew word, he sent messengers to Esau, it says he actually sent angels to Esau. Uh, the, the, the rabbinic interpretation is that he sent angels to Esau. Text doesn't say it actually says he sent men to him, but that's beside the point. Uh, then we get here, and here it says the, the, the sages of old say that the angel that he wrestled with was in fact the angel of the spirit of Esau. And so he had this wrestling encounter with the angel of the spirit of Esau. Esau was still back there somewhere in, in a dome, but he was wrestling with the spirit of Esau. Um, and we look at that and go, what the crap? Like, that's just the weirdest thing ever. Um, but I honestly believe, and, and you've heard me talk about this before, I honestly believe that this is what we would call a theophany 
and theological lingo. It's what we call a theophany. Uh, Colossians 1.15 says that Yeshua is the visible image of the invisible God. I believe that this is the visible image of the invisible God, pre-carnate, pre-incarnate, pre-before, uh, pre-being born of a woman, that this is, is the Lord himself, this is Yeshua that he is wrestling with. Uh, and he continues to cry out, tell me your name, tell me your name. And the angel says at the end, uh, what's this that you're asking my name? Then he blessed him there. The reason that the angel was saying, why are you asking my name, was because he should have known who he was encountering. And what's interesting is when he changes his name, he says, your name will no longer be Jacob, but rather Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and, have, and you have overcome. And the context, the way this is worded, I believe it's actually talking about he overcame men because he overcame Laban and he overcame Esau trying to kill him. He overcame all of these different situations, but he didn't overcome God. We can see in the interaction, he never overcame God. As a matter of fact, we can't overcome God. It just doesn't work that way. But he did wrestle with God, and that's where the name Esau comes from, is wrestler, one who wrestles with God, one who struggles with God, who battles with God. And, uh, and I think that Jacob is a great example of who we are more often than not, just as we often find ourselves crying out, I am unworthy of everything you've done for me. I am unworthy. Nothing about my life, nothing about what I've done in the past, nothing about who I used to be or even who I am now in you really expresses that there's a worth in my life for what you've done for me. But Lord, I thank you for everything you've done. In the same sense, we often find ourselves wrestling with God. And we can't overcome him. We just can't. But we often find ourselves wrestling him and asking him his name and asking him who he is. And at the same time, he's crying out, you should know who I am. You should know my heart. You should know my love for you. We're wrestling with God when the reality is the matches that we actually need to be fighting are not with God, but with the prince of angels and principalities and demons of this world. Not with God. But we often put our, our, our angst in the wrong place. How often do we find ourselves in a situation where we ignore the fact that we stepped outside of the will of God and all hell breaks loose in our life and then we blame God for allowing this to happen? And if you don't recognize immediately in your head times in your life where that's happened, you are lying to yourself, and we need to have a repentance party after this. But we treat God like that all the time. Jacob did that. If God had not brought him back, who would Jacob have blamed? He'd have blamed Adonai. Although God protected him and cared for him and gave him, he still would have blamed the Lord. And it took him coming back to the promised land before he recognized fully in repentance and teshuvah that the Lord was real, that the Lord loved him, and that the Lord gave him everything that he had, and that it was his duty and his responsibility to praise the Lord, to serve the Lord, and to worship him with all that he has. And he goes on uh, in verse 1, he finally meets with uh, with Esau, it says, verse uh, 33, verse 1, it says, Then uh, Esau glanced up and saw, behold, there was, e- uh, then Jacob glanced up and saw, behold, there was Esau coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two servants. He put the female servants and their children first, then Leah and her children behind them, then Rachel and Joseph behind them. But he himself on ahead, passed on ahead of them and bowed to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to him to meet him, hugged him, fell on his neck, and kissed him. And I think this is the key. And they wept. But Esau ran to meet him hugged him, fell on his neck, and kissed him, and they wept. I believe not only 
was Jacob, at this point in time, a man of repentance. But I think Esau realized that his heart was wrong in this situation too. And that for 20 years he had been estranged from his twin brother. For 20 years his household had been unfulfilled. Although he had many children, we read in chapter 36 about all of the children that Esau had. And many children. He was there near his mother and father. He had everything he could ever imagine, but his brother was not with him. And it was because of both of their actions outside of the will of God that caused this to occur. And I believe Esau had a change of heart as well. And when he comes and meets with Jacob, although he's got 400 men, those 400 men, I think, are uh, his own protection in case Jacob's coming with an army. But also, I think likely, that was a welcoming party. Much like we read about the son, the, the, the parable of the son coming back to his father after telling his dad, look, you know, I want all of my inheritance. I want everything. You know, let's pretend you're dead. I'm going to run off and have a good time. And he comes back and his father rushes out and welcomes him, put on this, puts on this huge feast for him. I think this is Esau's scenario like that. Esau is playing the role of the father, if you would, and he's ecstatic to see his brother come back. 20 years, a lot can happen. We can change a lot in 20 years. I know I am entirely different now than I was 20 years ago. I know the way I think and the way I act is different, entirely different than the way I was 20 years ago. Granted, I was in high school 20 years ago, and, uh, and, and I'm not now, but I was an entirely different person. 10 years ago, I was an entirely different Six years ago, when we started the synagogue, I was an entirely different person than I am now. One week ago, I was an entirely different person than I am now. And the reality is, is when we walk faithfully with the Lord, when we return to him in Teshuvah after walking outside of faithfulness, outside of his will, we're different than we were before. And so here Esau wants to meet him and hugs him, kisses him, and they wept, they cry. And I truly believe these were tears of joy mixed with tears of sorrow. Joy because they were reunited and sorrow because of 20 years lost in their relationship. Then we read about this really awkward story of Dinah and we read about the children of Esau and everything that goes on there. I want you to understand, Jacob, as I've said the last several weeks, Jacob is a prime example of our lives, of who we are. We need to look at Jacob's life regularly, faithfully, and recognize that Jacob, yes, a great man of faith towards the end of his life, was a huge moral failure for the beginning of his life. And it took him years and years and years to come around to being the man that God had created him to be, had called him to be, and had desired him to be this entire time. You got to understand, not only was Jacob now reunited with his brother, not only did he come back to him and have this loving encounter, but Jacob still wasn't 100% there yet. Because Esau says, come on, come back with me. I've got a place for you. You can live with my family and we can be a family again together as God had intended us to be. And Jacob says, listen, I got all these herds and these kids and short legs and all of this. And you know what? We're, we're going to be slower. Than you. Don't let us hold you up. You go ahead and we'll catch up with you. And Esau goes, awesome. I'll see you in a little bit. I'll go prepare a place for you. And I'm going to go on ahead. And Jacob hooked the right as quick as he could, as hard as he could, and went to Sukkot. As a matter of fact, we don't read about Jacob and Esau being reunited again until towards the end of the Parsha when Isaac is dying and they go to bury their father. Jacob never actually goes to follow through with meeting his brother and living among his brother again. I don't know that Jacob's heart just yet 
was entirely changed the way it should have been. I think a clear sign of that is we go forward to chapter 35, verse 1. It says, Then God said to Jacob, this is after Dinah, after Shechem, after everything that happened there. Then God said to Jacob, Get up, go up to Bethel, up to Bethel, the house of God, and stay there. This is where he encountered the vision of the latter. It says, Make an altar there to, God, to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to everyone who was with him, Get rid of the foreign gods that are among you. Cleanse yourselves and change your clothes. Now let's get up and go up to Bethel so that I can make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way that I, am, that I have gone. I think this is interesting. I think this is extremely interesting because what was it that Jacob said to the Lord last week, Sparsha? Jacob said in the encounter post the, the dream and the encounter at uh, Beit El, at what he renamed Beit El, the house of God, uh, he cries out to the Lord and says, if you bring me back to this place and I worship you here again, then I will worship you and I will serve you and you will be my God. And so after all of this, the Lord has brought him back to Canaan and Jacob not only never went to meet up with Esau, but he never actually went back to Beit El on his own. He never went back like he said he was going to. Even though the Lord did everything he said he was going to do, he didn't go back on his own. And the Lord says, get up and go back to Bethel. And I believe that Jacob's mind clicked and he went, oh, I messed up. You know what? All of this mess of these foreign gods, these idols, you know, uh, Rachel, that mess you brought back with you, you tried to hide under you and Laban, your father came, uh, all of it, get rid of it all. Get rid of all of the foreign gods. Change your clothes and then clean clothes. We're going to Bethel and we're going to build an altar and we're going to rededicate our lives to the Lord here and now. And so they go back to Bethel and he builds an altar. Verse 4 says, So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods in their hand and the rings in their ears and Jacob hid them under the oak tree near Shechem. Then he, they journeyed and the terror of God was on the cities that were around them so they did not pursue Jacob's sons. Now that he's in the will of God, guess what he's able to see? He's able to see the protection of God around him. He didn't see it on his way to Laban's house, but now that he's back in the will of God and back aligned with what the Lord wants for his life, now he can see everything the Lord is doing. And he's on his way to travel to Beit and he's traveling through all these cities. And keep in mind, he's traveling through these cities, and this is a timeliness. He's traveling through all of these cities immediately after his sons just slaughtered all of the men of Shechem. After telling them that if they go and get circumcised, they can marry their daughters and they would marry the daughters of Shechem. So all of the land of Canaan now has heard this story and recognized Jacob's coming through and his sons are coming through and they just wiped out this entire city. What's he going to do to us? Why is he coming to us? Why is he coming through here? And it says, Then they journeyed and the terror of God was on the cities that, they were, that were around them, so they did not pursue Jacob's son. They didn't pursue after to slaughter them. They weren't afraid enough to chase after them and defend themselves. They weren't worried about what he's going to do because the Lord protected them, put terror on the hearts of the nations around them. And Jacob recognized it. Verse 6, Then Jacob arrived to, at Luz in the land of Canaan, that is Bedel. He and all the people who were with him, he built an altar there and called the place El Bedel, God of the house of God, because God had revealed himself to him there when he fled from the presence of his brother. God appeared to Jacob, verse 9, again, after he returned from Padan Aram, and he blessed him. God said to him, your name was Jacob. No longer will your name be Jacob, for your name 
will be Israel. So he named him Israel. God also said to him, I am El Shaddai. What was it that he was begging of God in the, the, the wrestling match just a few chapters before? Tell me your name. Who in the world are you? Give me your name. And the Lord said, why are you asking me my name? You should already know it. The Lord wouldn't tell him his name there yet because he knew he wasn't quite. He was closer. He was a lot closer in Teshuvah. He was a lot closer, but he wasn't quite there yet. Now he's there. Not only there literally in Bedel, but spiritually he's there. Spiritually he has arrived where the Lord has been trying to bring him this whole time. And he says, I am El Shaddai. I am the God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and an assembly of nations will come from you. From your loins will come forth kings. The land that I gave to Abraham and to Isaac, I give it to you. And to your seed after you, I will give the land and the Lord says he, re- he renews that covenant with him. Now, he's already made that covenant with him before the first time he interacted with him. He's already renewed that covenant. And now he's making that covenant again with him, renewing the covenant they made with Abraham, the covenant he made with Isaac, the covenant he's already made with Jacob, and he's renewed it now. And he's renewed and restored the fullness of the name Israel, one who struggles with God. And then we go forward to Hebrews, and this is one of my favorite passages in Hebrews, and we've, we've dealt with it before, but verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 11, dealing with some of these great people of faith, says, now faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of reality is not seen. Jacob's life, there wasn't a lot of faith involved up until this point. For by it, the elders received commendation by faith. We understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen did not come from anything visible. Uh, And then we go down to verse 9. By faith, speaking of Abraham, he migrated to the land of promise as if it were foreign, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was waiting for the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Grasp that. By faith... Abraham, our father, Abraham was waiting for the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He was waiting for the new Jerusalem. He was waiting for the new Jerusalem, the city of God in in the heavenlies. Verse 11, by faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive when she was barren and past the age, since she considered the one who had made the promise to be faithful so for one from one and him as good as dead were fathered offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as uncountable as the sand of the seashore. The very promise spoken to Abraham and to Jacob. These all died in faith without receiving the prom- things of promise, the things promised, but they saw them and welcomed them from afar. And they confessed that they were strangers and sojourners on earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If indeed they had been thinking about where they had come from, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they yearn for a better land that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. See, what's interesting is they were looking forward to something that we have already experienced. They were looking forward to something that you and I are already a part of. We may not see the literal new Jerusalem here on earth yet, but we are a part of the kingdom of God. We are a part of the city of God. We are a part of what they had been hoping for their entire lives and what every promise God ever spoke to them was centered about. And you and I are a part of it. The sad thing is Jacob was a part of that promise too. 
And we find out later he finally did look forward to it and he finally became a man of righteousness, faith, and fervor. But it took him a long time to get there. It took him a long life of living in the world before he came to the place of living in his world. It took a long time to get there. The same is true for you and I. It took us a long time to get to where we are. It took us a long time to get to this place of redemption, salvation, hope, restoration, forgiveness, grace, and mercy, deliverance, and freedom. But just like Jacob, far too often, we find ourselves worrying about this world again rather than the world above. We find ourselves worrying about the things around us and the enemies that we think we see coming as opposed to worrying about the things above that are truly our inheritance and our righteousness. We find ourselves much like Jacob wrestling with God. Oh Lord, why in the world could you let this happen to me again? And the Lord says, why in the world did you put yourself in this place again? We find ourselves wrestling with God when as Ephesians tells us, in Ephesians chapter 6, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against the powers and against the worldly forces of this darkness and against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Our battle is not against the Lord. Our battle is not against ourselves. Our battle is not against each other. And our battle is not against the world around us. It is against the demonic forces in this world. And we need to recognize that we are part of an inheritance and we are part of a city and we are part of a family that has already been given victory over the things of this world. And unlike Jacob, who spent 20 plus years walking in fear of this world and of the things that he consequently caused upon himself, you and I need to stop walking in fear and walk in the truth of the salvation, redemption, and victory that has already been given to us. Because as we've already said, Genesis, God told Adam, you have dominion and authority over things of this world. Sickness, darkness, despair, war, depression, anger, anxiety, all of these things and far, far more. They're not things of heaven. They're not things of heaven. We have dominion over them. In Acts 2, the outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh reestablished our dominion and our authority over the things of this world. And just like Jacob in Genesis chapter 35, where the Lord had to grab him by the face and look him in the eyes like we have to do our little children sometimes and say, don't forget who you are. You're no longer Jacob. You're no longer one who supplants and deceives, but instead you are one who has wrestled with God. You are one who has wrestled with men and overcome. You are now mine. I am El Shaddai, the God of Almighty who now rules over you. And you have authority over the things of this world and there's nothing left to fear. And when we travel around the world and we move from place to place, we don't have to worry about the nations around us attacking us because the Lord has already put terror in their hearts because of the light of Messiah in our lives. The reality is, as you and I are part of an inheritance greater than anything we could ever imagine. We're part of a people greater than anything we could ever imagine. And the Lord has told us you don't have to worry about fighting the things of this world and you don't have to worry about fighting the things of heaven because none of that's your concern. But I have given you authority over the enemy. I have given you authority over all of this. It's time that you start acting like it. And he grabs us by the face and, and some of us need this experience a little more than others and, and some of us sit in this room probably need it right here and right now. And he squats down real low like we have to do with our children and grabs us by the face and and he looks us in the eyes and he says, don't forget, you're no longer the supplanter. You're no longer the deceiver. 
You're now Israel. You're now bought by the blood of the Lamb. My blessings and my promises are now yours. My covenant is now yours. Walk faithfully in my love and in my grace. All those things that you've already recognized you're unworthy of, you're right, you're unworthy of it, as you are. But as I've made you, you're worthy of everything and more that I have in store for you. The Lord wants you to know that he loves you more than you could ever imagine. He wants you to know that he's got things in store for your life that you could never fathom. Jacob had no clue what earning the birthright and inheritance truly meant. Often you and I have no clue, but we're a part of that birthright and inheritance. We have been made sons and daughters of the Lord Most High, of El Shaddai, the Lord Almighty. And the Lord is saying, look at me. I am your Abba. I am your father. I am your daddy. You are my child. I want nothing but good for you. Nothing but blessing for you. But I want you to walk with me. I want you to walk in me. I want you to live in my presence. And I want my presence to radiate off of you. So that everyone around you will encounter me in you. Jacob didn't for a long time walk in the fullness of what his inheritance truly was. But I truly believe that in Genesis 35, with the renewal of that covenant, that he began to walk in faithfulness of who he was as a child of God, as an heir to the kingdom of God. As Hebrews says, looking forward to that heavenly city which has foundations that is built and designed by the Lord Most High. And you and I are a part of that inheritance. You and I are a part of that city. And the battle is not one that we have to worry about for the struggle is not against flesh and blood. So no matter what we think about ourselves, no matter what we think about the families that we've come from, the generational curses that have been upon us, the issues that our fathers and forefathers have experienced or our mothers have experienced, the issues of the world around us, politics and national lines and all of this kind of stuff, none of that is of any consequence because our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the powers and against the worldly forces of this darkness and against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And you've got to understand, I've read the end of the book, We've already won. Look, we may be waiting for the triumphant return of Mashiach, but he's already won the battle. Our lives have already been redeemed. We just have to walk in that redemption faithfully and fervently day in and day out. We have to walk in unity. Jacob was restored and Esau, I think, was restored and Jacob never went back to Esau. And Esau's descendants, the Edomites, for generations upon generations upon generations hated Israel, wanted to kill Israel, and regularly and continually attacked and assaulted Israel. Now imagine had Jacob and Esau fully been restored. What would their relationship be like? We serve a God way bigger than anything we could ever imagine or anything we could ever encounter. The thing I love the most about Jacob and this Parsha was he sent his family across the river 
and he fell on his face. The thing I love about Moses and Aaron the most is every time something went wrong, they fell on their face. How often do we fall on our face? We need to make sure that day in and day out that we are walking in the inheritance that we have been brought into. Not fighting the world around us, but walking in dominion over the darkness of this world. Because that darkness cannot overcome or overpower the light that is in us. Avrachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Much like Jacob, we cry out that we are unworthy, but Lord, we recognize that in spite of who we are, in spite of the decisions we have made, in spite of our walking outside of your will and against your ways, that you have deemed us worthy anyways. And that no matter what we think about who we are, who we were, who we can be, you have greater things in store. Father, we cry out right now that your will be done in our lives, that you empower the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, that we have dominion and authority, that we walk in faithfulness and the dominion and authority over things of this world that you have given us and that you have restored to us. Father, I pray that we walk fervently in your will and in your ways and that just like our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that we look forward to the kingdom of heaven, the city built by your hands, designed by your hands, with a foundation that is Mashiach Yeshua. And that the world around us sees you in us every waking moment of our lives. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu, in the name of Yeshua Messiah we pray, and everyone says, Amen and Amen.